So last week after the service, someone came up to me and said, hey, this is a great series. I really enjoyed it. What are we starting next week? I said, well, I, I could see how you might be deceived by the fact that we're doing the meals of Luke, and the last one was called The Last Supper. But there's actually two left. So today we're going to be looking at the meal that Jesus has in Emmaus with two disciples on Easter afternoon. And then next week we'll finish the series by looking at the meal that he has with his disciples on Easter evening. What we've been doing throughout this series is we've been looking at how meals are a core part of the ministry of Jesus. That what Jesus is doing is not just teaching a better ethic. He's not just finding better ways to tell people to be good and stop being bad, but actually that his presence transforms people. That it is by encountering Jesus and getting to know Jesus and being in his presence that we are transformed. That's why Jesus is the doctor, the physician, and his prescription is, eat with me. Spend time with me. Be transformed by me. And we've looked at that throughout his ministry, and last week we looked at the Last Supper. And we saw that in that context, the Last Supper is part of a whole career of meals. And that it's actually a transition. And what's happening at the Last Supper is that Jesus is delegating his ministry of presence to his disciples. One of the things that communion gives us is the ability to, make, to realize the presence of Jesus in our gatherings. He gives the disciples a way to bring his presence into all the other meals that he's going to eat. Because he says, I'm not going to have any more meals till the kingdom comes. As opposed to them who will. And so he teaches them to carry on this ministry. And so now instead of there being one guy going around the backwaters of the Roman Empire having meals one at a time with people, right off the bat there's 12. Well, 11. And then there's gonna, and pretty soon there's going to be even more and even more. And now Jesus is having meals with people in millions of places around the world today. But they had to go through the crucifixion. Remember, the, the, the conversation ended with Jesus saying, all right, that's enough. You're not going to get it until you go through some things. So we'll just move on. And they move on. They leave the, the upper room, and they go to Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested, and all the disciples leave him. They all betray him on some level. And then Jesus rises from death. He's crucified on Friday. He rises from death on Sunday. And a group of women who were among the disciples, a group of several of his women disciples came and found the tomb empty. And they went back and told this to the disciples. And this is where we're picking up the story. We're picking up the story after the resurrection, but before the disciples have really gotten their minds around it. And we're seeing how they feel after the Last Supper and before everything fully clicks. And as I read this story on the, of the road to Emmaus, in the context of this journey that we've been on, I find it takes on a new significance. So I'm going to read the story, and then we're, we'll talk through what, we're, what happens in this encounter. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along, along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. 
He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled and said, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. It's an interesting story. And it's one that, on some level, is difficult for us to visualize because of this key element of the story that the disciples walked with Jesus and didn't realize it was him. Now, why didn't they realize it was him? How do we imagine Jesus in this moment? Is he some, does he, do his facial features look different? Is he glowing so brightly that you can't quite make it, make it out? Like how, why is it that they didn't recognize him? Well, we don't get a full explanation, but we do get some sense of it. Uh, it says that they were kept from recognizing him. There was something in the way, some kind of obstacle that prevented them from recognizing him. And the one clue that we get about what was preventing them from recognizing him was this statement they made. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus died. And all their hopes, they, that was not part of the plan. He died, and he's been dead for three days. This is, so clearly, what we expected to happen did not happen, and, and we have been disappointed. They, they believe that Jesus is still gone. Because... Every other human being who has died, pretty much, has been, unless there's someone like Jesus around to, to change that miraculously. So death, by and large, is the end. Right? So have you, ever, have you ever not recognized someone simply because they were in a place where you didn't expect to see them? Right? It's a different context or you were certain that they were out of the country or out of town or something like that. Or maybe you, like, you remember seeing your teacher 
out in civilian life when you were a kid and you, it took you a second, like, wait a minute, you, no, I thought you only existed in school. You just, you know, the context changed things. What seems to be happening here is that they don't recognize Jesus for, I mean, there, there's, you know, Mary also struggles to recognize him. So there seems to be something about his resurrection appearance that is different. But the clue that we're given in the story is that some important part of that, which keeps them from really recognizing him, the, the, the obstacle that they can't get over is the fact that they think Jesus is in the ground and they don't expect to see him walking around. They don't expect to meet him on the road. So the disciples didn't recognize Jesus because they thought Jesus' ministry had been defeated. They thought the story was over. So they're not looking for anything. They're simply mourning what's been lost. And as I read this story in the context of the sermon series that we've been doing throughout this last week, I suddenly, piecing together some of the things that some of the commentators said, I suddenly started to see this story from another point of view, almost like a Shakespearean kind of thing. You know, Shakespeare will often have these really contrived things where people hide their identity and they use it to do, to do funny things or, interest, or, you know, like, there's just interesting things that they do with, with disguised identities. And there's a way in which that's what I think is going on now, that Jesus is talking with two of his disciples. In fact, it's likely that Cleopas is his uncle. Cleopas is probably Joseph's brother. And these are people that he knows, and we'll see evidence later that they were, in, they were at the Last Supper. They don't recognize him, and they're despairing. And Jesus gets to do, use this opportunity of interacting with them in disguise to teach them something in a, in a powerful way that he, he wouldn't be able to use the same approach if they saw him, if they knew who he was. So what I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think he's doing, and then we'll go through it, and I'll show you why I think that. Through this encounter, Jesus demonstrated that these disciples had everything they needed to continue the ministry of Jesus. Not only was Jesus' ministry not defeated, but he has, remember, he delegated his ministry to them at the Last Supper. Which means that now that he's risen, he's going to make the point to them that they don't need anything else. They have all the tools they need in order to continue the ministry. And they actually already have all the tools that we're going to see them use to grow the church in the book of Acts. So, let's start with, the first thing Jesus does is he, he shows up alongside them, they don't recognize him, and he says, what are you discussing? What are you talking about? What's going on? And they say, uh, and, and just skip over, they say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And they tell him the story uh, that, of what's been going on in Jerusalem. And here's the story, and it has three main points. I've broken this up so you can see, see these three points. One, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. Two, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Three, it is the third day. Some of our women went to the tomb but didn't find his body. Angels said he was alive. These three points. Jesus was a great prophet, attested to us by miracles. He was taken and executed. And some people are saying that he, he's alive. Right? They tell him this story. And here's the interesting thing. You know what they just did? They just told Jesus the gospel. 
in, they, they have told him the story of Jesus. Because here's what's going to happen. At Pentecost, when the Spirit descends on, on the disciples, and Peter gives a sermon, the first sermon, to the Jews in Jerusalem, you know what he's going to tell them? Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It's the same story. Same beats. These guys are in despair because they don't yet really believe the ending of the story, but they already know the story. They already know the gospel. So the first thing that they have is they have the gospel, which is the testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They have the story that is going to get told for the next 2,000 years and on till the end of time. They've already got that. Now, Jesus is going to make the point that part of the reason why they're, or the main reason why they're despairing, even with that story, is because they haven't properly connected it with the rest of the story. Because they say, well, he died, and now it's, they, people are saying he's alive, but that wasn't the plan. That wasn't what we were expecting, so we're pretty sure he's just dead. We're pretty sure it's just over, because we don't know how else this could go. And Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with, the, with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. The point here, I, I don't think Jesus is shaming them when he says, you fools. When he calls them fools, I think the point is to emphasize the fact that he's not giving them new information here. You've had the scriptures your whole lives. You've probably got major portions of it memorized. I'm not about to show you anything that hasn't been written down for hundreds or thousands of years. You've had this the whole time. And when you take the story of Jesus and you plug it in to the testimony of the Old Testament, you will see this is what was supposed to happen, this is the only thing that could happen, and it all fits together. You know what Peter's going to do at Pentecost right after he tells him that story that we just went over? He's going to bring in some Old Testament. Peter says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter uses that, that psalm specifically to show that God has already pointed to the resurrection, that he has already said that he will... He will uh, that the one who is God's Messiah will not see decay. Like, well, David is very decayed by now. So, but we should be, you should have been expecting someone to come back from death because this person is not supposed to decay. So this is, that's not, that psalm is very old. The disciples on the road to Emmaus probably had it memorized. This is not new information. 
So he's emphasizing you already have this. They had the scriptures. That's what they would have called it back then because they didn't have the New Testament yet. They had the scriptures, which is a history of God's actions and promises through Israel. They can see God's pattern of behavior, which points to Jesus, and they can see the promises that he's made about the future, which also point to Jesus. And that is going to be a key part of how the, the apostles share the gospel with the Jews in the, in the book of Acts, is by connecting it with the Old Testament. Now, because we've read the whole story, I can jump ahead to the verse that describes what's happening to the disciples as Jesus is doing this, as he's explaining the, God, the, the Old Testament passages to, him, to them. Later on, after Jesus disappears, reveals himself and disappears, they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Something is happening in their hearts. When Jesus spoke, he wasn't just a really convincing interpreter of the Bible. I mean, he was, because he was right. But there was also some kind of confirmation happening in their hearts. Their hearts were burning. And that, that burning terminology is something we often use with the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting what, what part, when... Peter preaches on Pentecost what part of his audience is affected. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall, brothers, what shall we do? These are the people who watched Jesus get carried away to be crucified. Many of them probably watched him get crucified. So why do you think it was that Peter giving a sermon made a difference? seems to be because something is also happening in their heart. God is active not just in the mind and in the mouth of the speaker, but the Holy Spirit is also working on the people who are hearing. So to me, what that, what that gives evidence of is the fact that they had the Holy Spirit working on their hearts. Now, this is before the indwelling of the Spirit in the church, so you know, there's all kinds of different ways that people put together the role of the Holy Spirit in different stages of the church. But what seems to be happening at the very least is that the Holy Spirit's knocking on the door, talking through the windows, prompting them to listen, to say this isn't just a convincing argument. This is the truth, and you need to respond. So they have the gospel, they have the scriptures, they have the Holy Spirit at work, and they have one more element that Jesus has given them. They went and they had dinner, they had supper, and it says when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Now here's the thing you have to know about Luke. Luke likes patterned phrases, coded, kind of coded phrases. Took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and give it to them. That's communion. Those are the same verbs that were used at the Last Supper. There are also common verbs that are used throughout the meals, but especially the Last Supper. So what Jesus just did, first of all, he's not, this isn't his house, right? He's at someone else's house. It's someone else's meal, but Jesus takes over. And all of a sudden, he starts doing the exact same thing that he did at the Last Supper. This is why it seems that these two were at the Last Supper, because they recognize what he's doing. 
And all of a sudden, as he breaks the bread and he begins to do the Lord's Supper with them, this powerful meal that was delegated to them by Jesus, that's when they realize who he is. And what does Jesus do when they realize who he is? He disappears. Why? Here's my theory, and it's honestly a little bit hard to accept, but it seems to be true. That when Jesus is present in the meal, his physical presence is redundant. That seems hard to accept because we, we so, I mean, I would love to have Jesus physically here. But Jesus disappears, but he's still present in the meal. Right? It's not that Jesus suddenly is, is gone from them completely. It's that his physical resurrection presence is not there. Which is the whole plan. The whole plan is Jesus doesn't want them dependent on his physical presence. He wants them as agents bringing his presence to others. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a particular moment in 2019. This would have been in late February. Casey and I had just had our first child, and we had no idea what we were doing. Thankfully, Casey's mom came and stayed with us, helped us through the whole process, but there came a point when she had to go home. And we were not ready for it. <laughs> we were not willing to accept it. But she, I don't think she put it in these words, but what she essentially told us was that at a certain point, her presence became redundant. Because the whole point was for us to play our proper role as parents. And she had taught us what she could. A lot of what, the biggest thing she taught me was that parents don't automatically know what a baby's crying means. James was crying, and I said, what does he want? And she said, I don't know. Let's just try things until he stops. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's what parenting is. I thought that there was some code that I didn't know. Like, I thought the baby had an error code that I just wasn't getting. <clears throat> but at a certain point, in order for us to become the parents we were supposed to be, she had to go home. And that's happened two more times. With each kid, we're like, oh, but, but we can't do two on our own. Like, no, no, it's, it's time. We can't do three on our own. Still kind of believe that one. <laughs> but at a certain point, parent, the grandparents need to go home so that we can play the proper role as parents. And Jesus has always had it as the plan that, that his people would go out and share his presence with the world. It's way more effective than having one person who can only be in one place at one time. And so Jesus shows them the moment they, because they never get to say one word to Jesus knowing who he is. Not a single word. And I think, to me, that kind of sends a message like, hey, you guys don't actually need me. I didn't rise from the dead so, I could be, I, so that I could go along and hold you by the hand everywhere. But he still teaches us, and he gives us the spirit to continue teaching us. But the point is, no, you guys have me here at the table. You're going to be fine. And this is exactly what the church uh, in Jerusalem does. It describes their, their patterns of, of worship. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that same phrase, and to prayer. So they continued that practice, and that's how they built the church in Jerusalem. So they had the presence of Jesus with them in the, cup, in the bread and the cup. 
Now, it's really easy for us to, to look at the two on the road to Emmaus and kind of look down on them, like we often do with the apostles. Like Peter just gets, you know, we always say, what a silly guy Peter was, right? And we look at, especially when Jesus calls someone a fool, you can say, oh yeah, these guys just didn't get it, right? Like what, what dense people, um, clearly they are, uh, you know, clearly I would not behave like that. I would have known Jesus, like right But here's the thing. Actually, I find the two on the road to Emmaus to be very admirable people because they have the one thing that God's people really need to bring to this mix in order to make it all work. Because there's one thing that the disciples do. If they hadn't done it, they would never have found out it was Jesus and they would never have learned the point he was trying to make. So Jesus, why is Jesus on the road to Emmaus? He's a risen Lord. He can appear wherever he needs. He's not there because he needs to take the journey, right? And yet, when they get to Emmaus, Jesus acts as if he's going to continue walking. He's got nowhere else to go, like to walk to. He is there specifically for them. So why does he act as if he's going to keep going? Because he gives them an opportunity to do something. They urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went to stay with them. You have to think, think about the mental space they're in, the emotional space they're in. They are still devastated by the death of Jesus and the destruction of this whole cause that they've been a part of. They're still not convinced that Jesus is alive. Okay? They are so, there is so much potential for them to be completely drawn into themselves, completely focused on their own grief. And yet, I mean, it would have been so, if that had been me, what I would have done as we got to, as he went to go on, I would have thought, man, I finally get to go home and just cry on my couch, and I don't have to pretend to be, you know, I don't have to try and keep up a good conversation with a stranger. Um, have a good trip. But they, they urge him to come with them. That's good hospitality. In the ancient world, that's what you're supposed to do with strangers. You're supposed to offer them your home, your resources. You're supposed to take care of them, and especially as a follower of Jesus. Jesus has been impressing on them the importance of hospitality, the importance of spending time with people. And these men, even though they don't yet believe the resurrection, they still have been instilled by Jesus with that, de that DNA of hospitality. They still cared enough about the stranger they were journeying with to insist that he come home with them. I mean, these guys have been in Jerusalem for a week. Their house is probably a mess. They don't have a meal set up for guests Gonna, it's going to be a whole lot more work. You ever had to entertain a guest like right after you get back from vacation? That is a pain. But they insist on bringing him in and sharing this meal with him. If they hadn't, the, the encounter would have ended without them realizing they'd been talking to Jesus. So they had the heart to show hospitality to others. And that is so important. Because the truth is, and I, I, we talked about this in the evangelism class, I think I've talked about it from the pulpit, but we have a mistaken notion about what causes um, the growth of Christianity, what really causes Christianity to grow. We think that it comes from great gospel preaching. Do you know how many times we have recorded in human history preaching, bringing a group of people to to uh, convert to Christianity all at once. 
How many times that's happened in history? Zero. We have no, no recorded instances of a person preaching the gospel to a whole bunch of people of another religion and them all converting. Now, Pentecost, you had people who, that was a revival where they were called back to the God they already believed in. And that happens when people are already familiar with the God that you're talking about and you can call them to be revived back to him. That happens. But that's also because there's been a whole lot of work done in those people's lives beforehand. But it's not big gospel preaching. It's not, it's not the apostles going around and converting huge crowds at once that made the Roman Empire Christian. It was hospitality. It was the fact that Christians took care of their neighbors. It was the fact that they brought them over for meals. It was the fact that when the plague swept through, all the pagans would flee and the Christians would stay and take care of the sick. It was hospitality. It was living out the gospel that actually grew the church, that actually brought it to being the dominant religion in Rome by the 300s. Because they took care of each other. I, told you this I think I've told you this before. There's a really funny letter from a pagan emperor. He wrote it to the, the chief priest of the pagan religions there. Um, he's really mad because not only... He's trying to get the priests to start taking care of the poor because he's really mad that the Christians not only take care of their own poor, but they have the, the gall to take care of pagan poor too. And he's mad because that's, that, that's gaining a lot of people into Christianity. Because they're just so diligent about caring for others. So the truth is that it was gospel hospitality, not gospel preaching, that spread Christianity to the world. Now that isn't to say that preaching isn't important. But ultimately, if all we have of the gospel is words, it's not going to go very far. And here's the thing. It's interesting when we talk about revivals, that um, we, will, we, we will often talk about, we'll pray that a revival would happen, that the Holy Spirit would just break out and start a revival. And, and we think that that's what needs to happen is the Holy Spirit needs to do something. Or um, <clears throat> secular scholars will look at, at revivals like the First and Second Great Awakening. There's periods in American history when there was big religious movements. And they'll try and figure out what changed so that all of a sudden people wanted religion. And we, when we look back at revivals, we want to say, what changed so that people wanted religion? Whether it was something happening in history or something that the Holy Spirit is doing. But let me ask you this. Why would the Holy Spirit ever be against revival? Can you picture a moment when the Holy Spirit says, you know what, no, we don't need more Christians over here. We've got a backlog. They're, they're really, they're bottlenecking upstairs. So let's just hold off. We don't want any more. Maybe not over here. Like, why would the Holy... I believe that the Holy Spirit is part of revival, but why would it ever be against revival? The interesting thing about those revivals, like the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, you know what always happens before those big revivals? A lot of planning and a lot of prayer. All those big revival leaders that you know, from Billy Graham back to George Whitfield, those were all planned at least a year in advance. And they were prayed over a year in advance. They would get huge groups of people who cared about seeing revival, and those people would invest their time and their resources and their energy into it. So that that area was ready for revival. Sometimes we want to say, oh, if we just hire a dynamic speaker, they'll come in and do all the work for us. Here's the thing. What's, when there isn't revival, what's usually missing is us. It's our willingness to do the job we've been called to. 
And when revival breaks out, it's usually because something happened that got people to care enough to invest in revival. It got people to care enough to spend a year or more planning one event in the hopes that it might bring some people to know Jesus. Cambridge Revival is the same way. Revival isn't this unexplainable activity of the Spirit. The Spirit is always pro-salvation. It is always pro-revival. The Spirit always wants to reach everybody. It's not hard to discern. What's hard to do is it's hard for us to act on. And that's why we need to remember, we need to have this, we are, we are given the same thing that the disciples are given, right? We have the gospel, the story of Jesus. We have the Old Testament, the history of his promises. We have the Holy Spirit active in the world. We have the Lord's Supper. What we need is the heart of hospitality, the heart that is willing to be inconvenienced by people, that's willing to give up our time, that's willing to let the day go completely different than I planned it to or wanted it to, that's willing to let people into our lives that we may not know or like to know. It's the willingness to actually act on the calling of Jesus. So here's what I want us to remember. God has given his people everything we need to change our neighborhoods and the world. And I would argue that we change the world by changing our neighborhood. Because you know what happens when we send missionaries around the world? We're sending them to neighborhoods around the world to change those neighborhoods. Like there is no gospel kingdom building plan that doesn't involve transforming communities. It's what it is. And there are two things that God needs from us in order to make us part of his plan. God doesn't need this from us or he'll be defeated. God needs them from us if we're going to be in his plan, if we're going to play the role that he wants us to play. And the first one is a heart for hospitality. I'm using that term very broadly. What I really mean right now is a willingness to invest your life in other people, a willingness to welcome people into your life, to be inconvenienced by them. You know, in biblical hospitality means that you don't let a single person, a visitor to town, sleep on the streets. People wouldn't go to the hotels. They would go to the town square and uh, just wait for someone to invite them to their home. And if anybody was left in the cold at the end of the night, that was a shame on that town. That's hospitality. And when you brought them in, you made sure that they had the best food and lodging you could give them. And you were responsible for their safety. You were responsible for their care. That's hospitality. And so what we're called to is this investment of our best in loving others. And the other thing that we need, and this is what Jesus inspired in them by go walking them through this whole process, is faith in his plan. Because when they realized that Jesus was alive, that was the missing piece. They had the confidence that, all, that, that, it was, that Jesus really was alive and that his plan really was going forward. And now they knew that those meals really could change the world. Because before they knew Jesus was alive, it seemed like that whole meal plan didn't work. That, that eating with people didn't actually change anything because Jesus ended up dead. When they find out that Jesus is alive, they realize that all the powers in the world can't defeat God's plan. And so they believe that by doing this, I can change the world, or God can change the world through me. Because our temptation is to get sucked into other methods, to get sucked into the world's methods of making things change. And Jesus is saying, no, I've given you the way to change the world. Trust in this. 
Keep doing it. Keep investing time. Don't give up on people. Keep at this plan, and it will change the world. So here's the challenge that I want to give you. Here's what I want you to remember. If the Holy Spirit is saying one thing verbatim for me, this is what he's saying, I hope. God wants to meet your neighbors at your table. God wants to meet your neighbors at your table. That's how this whole plan works. You have opportunities to introduce your neighbors to Jesus. And that's what our tables are for. Amen? We're going to be talking a lot about this because I believe that we, we live in a town that calls itself the good neighbor town. We also follow a Savior who told us to love our neighbors. So those of us who believe in Jesus should be the best neighbors in a good neighbor town. And that's the challenge that I'm going to lay before you over this coming year, is how we can be godly neighbors in our community and transform this community for God. Amen?